of the book of 1 John. If you guys want, you can open up there. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Uh, in this season of Advent, we've been taking a look at four main large biblical themes that recur over and over again throughout the entire biblical storyline. And there are themes that I would even argue that each one of us need in order to lead a thriving or flourishing life. Uh, To put it another way, if these four values or four ideas or themes are absent from our lives, we find ourselves despairing, depressed, going through hard times, feeling a sense of meaninglessness and purposelessness. And those themes that we've been looking at over the past few weeks have to do with hope, love, peace. And today we'll be looking at the subject of joy. So I'm going to read out of 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Just go ahead and listen if you would like. Um, my computer decided to take a early Christmas break. So uh, what you have today are just bare remnants. And so today was a really fun uh, day of pivoting um, from the very bright morning light. And so anyways, um, this is the best I have. So hopefully um, it's not going to very, be very extensive as far as like notes and whatnot as typical, but um, this is the best I have. So here we go. I'm going to read First John chapter 1. It says this, that which is from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which our eyes have seen, which we have looked upon, we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Obviously a reference to Jesus. And then it goes on to say, the life was made manifest. In other words, appeared, came amidst us, what we celebrate as Christmas, God incarnate, God stepped into this world. Um, He says the life was made manifest, and we've seen it, is what John's claim is. We've seen Jesus in the flesh. We've seen God come to us, and therefore he says, and we testify to you, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, that which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, with which we have heard and seen, we also proclaim to you, so that you might have fellowship with us. In other words, as we are all sharing with the reality of what we saw, we share that with you, so that you participate in what we saw and in all that it uh, entails. He says in verse 3, that which we have seen, which we have heard, we proclaim to you, so that you too might have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 4 is the main kind of thesis or idea that I really want to focus on. Then John summarizes it by saying, and we are writing these things to you so that your joy might be complete. John's pretty clear. His whole aim, his agenda, uh, his ulterior motive, if you would, is your joy. I want you to pause and think about this. I don't know if you have assessed your life or observed a variety of things that are happening and transpiring in our world today, but most of those things can be things that lead to the exact opposite of joy. They lead to despair or frustration or anxiety or angst or stress or worry. And what John's basically writing is saying, I I want you to have access to and live into this concept, this idea of joy. Joy is kind of an interesting thing. It's actually all throughout the Bible. In fact, at the very beginning of the Bible itself, it says that God created Adam and Eve, and he placed them in this garden we know is described as the word Eden. The word Eden literally means uh, desirable or desire or beauty or goodness. Um, It's literally something that God intended to put human beings into so that as a result of living in that environment, they themselves uh, uh, would discover delight and joy and have access to that. And as a result of having access to delight and joy, uh, uh, delight, they would then become themselves filled with joy. Um, the natural state of 
our human souls, oftentimes it's not one of joy. We long for joy, we desire joy, but oftentimes joy uh, evades us. It's not there. And yet we oftentimes go hunting for it. We look for it. We're, it's like we're wired for joy. And Scripture knows this. This is one of the beautiful things that I think John, as he's writing, especially in this time of year, he's trying to help us to access that. My hope this morning would be able to just provide a few simple things to consider, things that I think, that I'm, I'm confident I would say, that bring about joy. So I'm going to go through these one by one, and then we will actually then move into the time of candlelighting and then our final song. So three things that John really throughout the entire book of 1 John, uh, this is like a big 30,000 above, you know, floor level uh, view of the entire book of uh, First John, but he covers each one of these things. And what I want to do is because John's aim is to say, my hope would be that you would have joy, this just kind of big principles that John casts out to us to say, if you apply these, if you live according to these, if you access these, then you will have joy as something that's available to you right now in this moment. All right, so those three things are number one, the promises of God, Number two, the victory of Jesus. And number three, the comfort of the Spirit. I'll go through each one of these one by one. I'll make some comments on them, and then we'll wrap this up. The promises of God. This is something that John comes back to again, not only in the Gospel of John, in the writings of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, in the book of Revelation, talks about these promises that God makes, um, that God had stated to human beings even at the very beginning of time when he placed them in the garden of delight, the garden of joy, and even when they lost access to that because of their own sin, their own rebellion, God promised to them, he says, I'm going to provide a means for you that will cover your guilt, your shame, your brokenness. I'm going to provide for you a means by which you can become healed and made new again. And this is the promise that God makes. It's not just simply making promises, but it's a promise that ultimately will be fulfilled. And John realizes this. Christian hope is anchored not just in random promises that God makes, but in tangible reality that God says, here's what I'm going to do, and here's how I'm going to make good on what I'm going to do. This is what this whole season is all about. We celebrate Jesus coming into this world. I don't know how that hits you or impacts you, but at the very heart of all of this, all Christians throughout all time for the past 2,000 years, and there's been no deviation from this. This is central and core to the very belief system of Christianity, is that God came into this world to rescue it. Not to condemn it, not to castigate it, not to shame it, not to guilt it, but to rescue it. How did he do that? He did that by way of making promises and then keeping good on those promises. One thing as I was thinking about this is God exercises power. And I don't know how you think about power. Power has been one of those subjects that has been under incredible scrutiny over the past 50 to 100 years, if not even more so. But the big idea is that because power oftentimes gets abused, because we live in a surveillance technologically uh, aware world in which we live in where something can happen where there's an abuse of power and then immediately millions of people see that viral video and everybody knows how power can be abused. I don't know how you think about God and power, but Bible claims that God has ultimate, infinite power. 
And you can look throughout scriptures and see there's occasions. Again, if I were to ask you, define God's usage of power. And some of us uh, might immediately think of images where God conquers enemies or God commands elements, right? He speaks to the sea and the sea listens or he parts the Red Sea and it does what God tells it to do or he tells, you know, a storm to form, a storm happens, that God commands these things. Those are definitely acts of power, and those are definitely attributes that oftentimes God himself has stepped into and done. But what I want you to think about right now in this season is the power that God used in creating new life. And throughout the scripture, you'll see these moments. It's as if God says, I want to show you how I'm going to step in to do something new. And the way in which God says something new is about to dawn, it's going to sound like a crazy, maybe almost even unbelievable power usage. But God says, I'm going to take someone who is incapable of having a child. And through an act of creation, they're going to have a child. Beginning with Sarah. Something new happens. It's as if God's about to say, the way I'm going to announce I'm moving and working and reigning and doing something brand new, something good, something beautiful, something redemptive, is I will do a creative miracle that involves a barren womb or an impossibility or an unbelievable circumstance, and I will make it happen. So you got Sarah. She gives birth to a child, and that begins the entire lineage of the people of Israel. God does this with Hannah. She has a child, and it begins a new move of God. We see God do this very same thing with Mary. The Holy Spirit comes over her and she begins to have the ability to have a child and she gives birth. This is, this is how God uses power, by the way. Don't, don't think of God using power in coercive or oppressive ways. God uses power as a means of giving life and liberation and help and healing. And this is all linked to God's promises. So for example, in Isaiah, as we had just read, Beautiful passage. I want to reiterate it because he starts out this whole little passage in writing to the people of Israel that are going through a really tough time, which not much has changed over the past thousands of years. Israel is still going through very difficult times, as well as many people within this world. But the point of the matter is God speaks specifically to the prophet. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Then he goes on to say, with gentle words, tender and kind, assure Jerusalem, this chosen city from long ago, that her battles will one day be over. This is God's promise to the people of Israel. One day, this will happen. How is God going to step in and do this? He goes on to say, verse 5, the Lord will be, really be, I'm not even sure what translation this is, to be honest with you. It's not a normal one that I read, but the Lord will be, really be, among us. The radiant glory of the Lord will be revealed. All flesh together will take part in it. Believe it or not, none other than God, the eternal God, has spoken. And it's not until you get to the person of Jesus that you see the extent that God says, this is how I will begin to bring forth comfort and joy. It's through a baby, my son, that will come and establish a whole new kingdom, a whole new way of doing this thing we call humanity on planet Earth. So the second thing we see is not only the promises of God provide joy, anchor yourself into those promises, and you will begin to find some means or a, 
a well or a source whereby joy will be available and accessible to you. Secondly, we see it also has to do with the victory of Jesus. Again, this is central to the very idea of all Christians from the very beginning was the hope, the confidence that one of the things that God did by coming to this world was not just to live the human life. Jesus had a mission. There was an aim that Jesus came. It wasn't just to be a baby. It wasn't just to endure human, hum, the human experience. It was to accomplish something. It's not until we get to Easter that we step more into the story of all of that. But the fact of the matter is, is that central to this idea of Jesus coming into this world, uh, stepping into a mission, was to bring about victory. And this kind of taps into the larger storyline that's oftentimes not really understood. It's just implied. It's kind of like when you watch, you know, Star Wars, the very first one that came out back in, what, 77. Like, you don't really know who this guy dressed in this black costume is that breathes really heavy, do you? Nobody knew. And it's not until you get to some of the other later segments that you begin to realize, like, holy cow, this guy has a whole backstory, and that's where this guy Darth Vader came from. He didn't just come out of thin air. There's this whole backstory that you don't know about until you get into later in the story. The Bible's the same way. The backstory to our joy or our deficiency of joy is Satan, the devil, has been a part of this project on planet Earth for a very, very long time. And at some point, again, we don't know the entirety of all the details, but we do know that Satan at one point rebelled against God. It caused this cosmic conflict, if you would. And as a result of that, swept, deceived, brought humanity, you and I, into this darkness, this brokenness, brokenness within this world. And what Jesus has come to do is to overcome, to bring victory over the devil and death and brokenness to rightly realign us back into right relationship with us, with, with himself. And what Jesus does is victory over evil. Jesus brings about really this recapturing of our hearts, of our affections, and brings about obedience. And as we walk in obedience to Jesus, we find ourselves walking in the way that God intended things to actually be. So what's the alternative to that? The alternative is to walk in disobedience. I mean, really, these are the two options that we have available to us. Walk in obedience to God, where we are willfully acknowledging, recognizing God is good, I trust him, I will follow him, or we have a view of God that is defined by suspicion. I'm not really sure if God is good. I'm not really sure if he can be trusted. I'm not really sure if I believe this whole stuff. And that leads to suspicion, but at some point that leads to you living out some sort of narrative or script, and please understand what that ultimately ends up looking like is that we, for the most part, will oftentimes be swayed by the very intentional myth makers of our world today, we call them marketers, that are trying to sell you on something, trying to convince you to live into something that's other than God. And as a result of that, we find ourselves going far away from God's intentions and really at the same time, far away from joy. And God's aim is joy, your joy, my joy. So the second thing that we see is not only the promises of God bring to joy, bring us to joy, the victory of Jesus brings us to the joy that God intends for us, and the last thing is this comfort that comes from the Spirit. John, throughout the remainder of the little book of 1 John, describes how the Holy Spirit will come and be a comforter and live among us. This is kind of an echo of what Jesus said, that Jesus, as he comes into this world, he also departs from this world so that Jesus physically is no longer here, but Jesus says, it's okay. Though I'm going to part from this world for now, I will one day return. We await 
the hope that one day King Jesus will return. But until that happens, Jesus says, my presence will always be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will always be with you. So the fact of the matter is, in summary, is joy is something that becomes available to each one of us. It's not dependent upon circumstances, or if you want to use another word, happenstances. If you take a look at that word happenstance, there is a word that is a part of that larger word happenstance. It's the word happy. It's where we get happiness from. Happiness is dependent upon our circumstances. Joy is something very different. Joy is anchored, tethered to the promises of God, the victory of Jesus, and the comfort that comes through the Holy Spirit. So my hope for you today, as we step into the rest of Christmas Eve and all of the joyful celebrations that we're going to be doing, again, for some of us, that may be tough because some of you might not have access to that. Some of you, life within family is extremely painful, and it's anything but joyful, anything but pleasurable, anything but delightful. But the fact of the matter is, in the midst of that, joy is something that is still available and accessible because it's independent from the circumstances, and it's deeply tethered to these three other things that I just mentioned. So let me end on a, just a very tangible example of this. Um, I've mentioned this before, that uh, my wife is getting ready to have a cancer treatment. I'm not sure if, whose phone is ringing, but um, just make sure that you don't miss this important call. Um, could be your, your parent, and we just make sure you don't miss that. That's good. Um, we'll have good time to chat with family and all. That's going to be a good time. But the point that I would make is this. My wife is about ready to go into uh, surgery this Thursday, and we don't know what the outcome of that is, and we've had a several months to process this and kind of figure this out and make sense of this and how to deal with this and the what-ifs of what could happen and what might happen and what the out possible outcomes of this entire journey for us might be. And one of the things that we consistently and regularly and frequently come back to over and over and over again is a handful of, of small, though very profoundly dense and weighty truths that just keep us going. Number one, we realize, like, we have each other. <laughs> I, we're, we're in this together. This is not just you going through this. I'm with you going through this together. So whatever happens to you is going to happen to me. We're, gonna, we're in this together. I'm not going to leave you. My presence will be there with you. I'm not going to be in the operating room because I don't think they'll let you do that, but I will be there in Santa Barbara right there with you through all of this. So secondly, we always go back to promises that God has given to us in the past, that God has been faithful over and over and over again throughout our lifetime. Yes, there have been moments where life is anything but pleasurable or delightful or any form of warm, fuzzy, happy feelings that come out of it. But we recognize, even in the midst of that, God's faithfulness consistently, continually reoccurs and reappears, oftentimes in places you never expect. The third thing I we've talked about is that we've, we're surrounded by amazing people that God has blessed us with, that have spoken words of encouragement and truth and written letters to us of encouragement and that have given us Venmo and just helped us out in ways that we never even expected, little gift cards. Uh, it's been a huge, absolute, unexpected, but amazing blessing. And we just realize we're not alone in this, that God has shown up through the family of God, the, the people of God, to, to help carry us. And then ultimately, lastly, we realize that 
Jesus has victory. We have hope that one day, whatever happens, we are with Jesus. Jesus promises to give us a brand new body one day, one that does not have cancer in it, one that is not subject to frailty or tiredness or anxiety or just feeling like you just want to take regular constant naps and not wake up, and that your favorite time of the day is actually sleeping because why else would we do anything else? But the point of the matter is, is that we will one day be given bodies that will have something entirely more prone to be more fully alive than we can ever even imagine. And this is the hope that we have because of the victory of Jesus. Because Jesus is alive, we have life. And as a result of that, I, I think I can honestly say that my wife and I in this state right now have ourselves anchored to joy. Now, the circumstances are horrible. We, we're not happy with them. We're not happy with the place that we find ourselves in right in this moment. But we are tethered to joy. And we have this sense of just confidence and quiet hope. And we're not stressing or dreading, you know, this season that we're in the midst of. We'll, we'll weather it. We'll make it through because Jesus has shown us the way. And he's gone before us. And my hope for all of us, as we conclude, that we would step into that same joy that Jesus offers. So I don't know where you're at or what types of circumstances you find yourself going through right now, but my invitation to you would be to look to this Jesus that offers himself to you and place your confidence in him. And maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. Maybe you are still trying to make sense of the claims of Jesus. Maybe it's time for you to consider what are the alternatives that you're stepping into right now? How are they working for you? Are they helping? Are they leaving you broken, more deficient, more conflicted, more tormented? And the invitation would be to turn from those things. The word scripturally is to repent and to turn to the one who loves you, and he gave himself for you. So right now, I'm going to invite you guys to stand. We're going to play a song, but how we're going to do this is we're going to light the candle. In fact, I'll kind of, I'll, I'll, I'll do like the, the first one. So if you can hand me one, and here's, here's the sim, symbolism we're going to do. It's going to come off of this little Advent candle right here, and from the candles that we've been lighting this past week. And the image that I want you to think about is this. In fact, if we can do this, can we turn off all the lights in this room? Turn off all the lights. I want you to feel, even the stage lights, just dim them down as much as you can. There you go. There you go. Okay. You guys don't need to see me. I want you right now, if, if this is not dark enough, close your eyes. Close your eyes. And I want you to feel the darkness. And if you can't feel the darkness, I want you to think back to a memory in your childhood where the darkness was really real and you were, you were afraid of it. I'm not trying to conjure any form of terrifying emotions, but I want you to sense where those fears oftentimes lead us. It leads to confusion, sometimes terror, being afraid, being alone, feeling a sense of no one's around. That's what darkness is. But what Jesus did as the Son of God coming into this world, the light of the world, was to start a whole new movement that would light the life and the lives of all who trust in him. 
And as a result of that, not only would individual lives be changed, but a whole community would be transformed. Nations would be changed. And one day, Scripture says, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God. And it all began with one work of God, a light coming into this world. So as I begin to light the candle, um, as you hold the candle upright, the person that's going to be lighting, you got to listen up real carefully here. Make sure that you light the candle like this to the other person. Or no, sorry. Sorry. Scratch what I just said. Hold it up like this. <laughs> Please listen. <laughs> Don't listen to what I just said. I'm going to tell you something else. Totally something else. Keep your candle. Once it's lit, I'm going to light this, right? So I'm going to demonstrate for you. Make sure I get this right. Keep your candle that's lit upright. Do not tilt it. You'll get wax everywhere. Hold it upright, and the person behind you or next to you, have them dip their candle into your light, and then we'll light it, okay? So I'm going to light Amrita, and then we're going to just make our way through here. See, here's an example. Okay. Let's just sing that last little melody together. We have it up on the screen. So just we'll sing that through once. Look around the room. Some of you guys are going to take out your phones, and that's fine too. But please, please be careful. Be careful. Take photos. Enjoy it. Enjoy the moment. But I want you, as you're looking around the room and singing this song, I want you to be reminded. This is a picture, I believe, of what Jesus does. He lights people's lives something they didn't deserve, they didn't earn, and then this has the power of really impacting and changing an entire community. Let's sing.